Well, this is the last week of our sermon series on belonging, accessibility, inclusion, and Christian community. And we've saved, I think, one of the hardest questions for last. We're looking at the healing miracles of Jesus in relation to our experience of disability. And there are a number of questions, I think, at least for me, that emerge right off the bat. And Wanda, you kind of teed us off for this. How many of us have ever asked, why doesn't God heal everyone? Why doesn't God heal everyone? Like for any of us who've been affected by a life-changing illness or a debilitating physical impairment or a degenerative condition that slowly reshapes our body or our mind, how many of us have cried out to God for healing? what we do. How many of us have raged at God when that healing didn't come? Why doesn't God heal everyone? And, and there's a theologically true answer, but sometimes I think it's emotionally frustrating, <laughs> and that's that Christ did heal all of us, that when we experience the resurrection, this perishable body will receive imperishability, that because of Christ's resurrection we will experience a kingdom in which there will be no more death, there will be no more sadness, there will be no more crying or pain, things will no longer be the way they used to be. Christ will heal us, all of us, every part of us, when the kingdom comes will be made whole, and that is a beautiful truth, and one I think that can sustain us through loss and hardship and pain, it can sustain us through the hurt that it's okay to feel. But we're in the, when we're in the emergency room and we're hearing the beeps and the whirls of the machines keeping our child alive and we're pouring out our prayer with every ounce of our being, I don't want to hear that Jesus is going to heal my child later. I want to know why doesn't God heal everyone now? I mean, Jesus did it in the Bible. Jesus did it for my friend. Heck, Jesus did it for my enemy. <laughs> why not me? Why not now? It's a question you can imagine that, that maybe drove those four friends to carry a fifth friend to see Jesus when he was preaching in Capernaum. They no doubt had heard about Jesus driving out evil spirits. They no doubt heard that Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother and then the, the multitudes that came to her house after to be healed. They no doubt heard how Jesus had cured the man of his skin disease and they no doubt had asked themselves, well, why not our friend? Why not now? And this is what happened. This is Mark chapter 2, verses one through 12. A few days later, Jesus entered Capernaum again. The people heard that he had come home. So many people gathered that there was no room left. There was not even room outside the door. And Jesus preached the word to them. Four of those who came were carrying a man who could not walk. But they could not get close to Jesus because of the crowd, so they made a hole by digging through the roof above Jesus. And then they lowered the man through it on a mat. 
Jesus saw their faith, and so he said to the man's son, Your sins are forgiven. Some teachers of the law were sitting there. They were thinking, why is this fellow talking like that? He's saying a very evil thing. Only God can forgive sins. Right away, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he said to to them, why are you thinking these things? Is it easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus spoke to the man who could not walk. I tell you, he said, get up, take your mat, and go home. So the man got up and took his mat, and then he walked away while everyone watched. All the people were amazed. They prayed God, and they said, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you. We praise you. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the healing he offers us in this life and the healing to come in the next. As we find ourselves caught in this in-between, between what we know what Christ has done And what we know Christ will do as we find ourselves in the tension of what has already been and what is yet to be. Lord, speak a word to us that that brings us peace, brings us to closer understanding, puts hope in our hearts. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So how many of you remember that story? of the four friends bringing their friend. It's a classic from our childhood. It's usually told to remind us of the importance of friendship and loyalty and trust in Jesus, the lengths that these four friends will go to get healing for a friend are inspiring. And yet for all this scripture has to tell us about friendship, it also has a good deal to tell us about our perspective on disabilities. For example, there are a number of ways that people think about disabilities, one of which we call the medical model. This may sound familiar to you. The medical model, according to Jeremy Shipper, understands disability as a biological defect located within a person's body that needs to be cured. And this is certainly what brought this man and his friends to Jesus. Right, This man's disability left him unable to walk, and stories of Jesus' miracles and healings had made their way throughout Galilee, and this is our chance for our friend to be cured. That's why they're held up as model friends who wouldn't do whatever they could to get their friend the healing that they know is available that was one of the, the, the hopes behind the documentary. We watched a, a clip of it a few weeks ago, Darius Goes West. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a fatal illness. It still has no cure. Jerry Lewis and films like Darius Goes West live on the hope that we can find a cure for DMD and that my friend Brian might have been cured. But there's a flip side to this, this, this hope and reliance on a cure. While we hope for a cure for a disease, We have to be careful that we don't see the person as only their disease or as only their disability, that we don't see Darius only as someone who needs a cure to be whole or wholly worthy 
or that we don't see him solely as the object of our prayers. That I don't look at my friend with autism and think, she needs a cure to be a full person. Or that the first thing I think when I see my friend with cerebral palsy is, man, he's pretty cool. Imagine how cool he would be if he were cured. In her book, now this title, by the way, it knocks my socks off. My Body is Not a Prayer Request. In her book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Amy Kenny talks about how her, often her existence and her worth is reduced to her disability. She talks about how the church, of all places, is often the most hurtful. Often, she says, the first well-meaning, Christ- thing, well-meaning Christians want to do when they meet me is pray for me to be released. This is what she says. My story is not unique, she writes. Most of my disabled friends have their own stories of strangers approaching them to pray away their disabilities, sometimes at church, other times on public transport or at the grocery store. I love this. No place is safe from prayerful perpetrators. (laughs) It's draining to endure, especially because the people who do this don't intend to cause us harm. They just haven't considered how the assumption that disability needs fixing is dehumanizing. To see your neighbor as someone who needs fixed before you see them as a person is dehumanizing. Most days, Kenny says, her disability is the least of her worries and definitely not on the top of her prayer list. She continues, To assume that my disability needs to be erased in order for me to live an abundant life is disturbing, not only because of what it says about me, but also what it reveals about people's notions of God. I bear the image of the Alpha and the Omega. My disabled body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. I have the mind of Christ. There's no caveat to those promises. I don't have a junior Holy Spirit because I am disabled. To suggest that I am anything less than sanctified and redeemed is to suppress the image of God in my disabled body and to limit how God is already at work in my life. What a beautiful sentiment. It's a beautiful reminder that that I may have a cognitive disability, but I can still have the mind of Christ. I can struggle with mental health, but I still have the mind of Christ of Christ, that my body might be broken, but I am still part of the body of Christ. I mean, especially considered what, considering what Christ's broken body means to all of us. I don't need to be cured to be whole. I am wholly God's just as I am. And I wonder if that's why when the four lowered their friend down on a mat before Jesus, I wonder if that's why the Messiah, seeing their faith, didn't immediately cure the man of his physical impairment. No, he forgave his sins. He didn't heal his broken body, not first anyway. Rather, he restored that man's broken relationship with God. I mean, ever since Adam and Eve got themselves kicked out of the garden, that is God's primary purpose with our lives. He wants all of us to restore our relationship with Him. Christ saw Him first and foremost, not for His disability, not for His physical impairment, 
but Christ saw him for the child of God he is and offers him the same holy relationship healing that we all pray for when we pray forgive us our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who sin against us. In fact, when Jesus does heal the man, it's only to show the teachers of the law that he does, in fact, have authority to forgive sins. That Jesus is indeed the Son of Man spoken by the prophets, and that everyone in the room needed the same kind of healing that Jesus offered to the man who could not walk. But I think sometimes it's our nature, right, to single people out. It's also in our nature not to want to be singled out. Like how many of us have known the horror of standing out in a room for all the wrong reasons and have everyone looking at you? <laughs> like I, had, I, I did a wedding last night. One of our, our young people, well, I mean, she's old enough to be married now. She's not young, young. But <laughs> Reagan Porter, and I, I was, I think I texted Shauna after. I was like, well, at least I didn't mess that up. That's my fear every time I'm standing up in a wedding or, or for to do a funeral that I'm just going to say some complete nonsense and make a fool of myself and ruin like someone's memory for the rest of their life, right? I don't want to be singled out. I don't want to stand out in a room and have everyone staring at me. Can you imagine then being that man? I mean, everybody probably already knows him as the cripple, the guy who's lame in both legs. And whether by accident of birth or some trauma of life, his disability marks him as different from everybody else, singles him out. So you can imagine the room is crowded, so full, not another single human being can fit in the room. How many sets of eyes would be in that room that are now trained on you as you're being lowered from the ceiling a brand new hole with the dust falling on everybody's head to remind them, hey, look up, incoming. I mean, anybody ever seen Peter Pan live? It was at Starlight not too long ago. Uh, Peter Pan goes wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the fear, right, Ian? wrong on purpose. Oh, okay. To make it go right. Well, but see, like, you, when you see this one, you all, they weren't in the air going wrong, were they? And in the short I saw, they were using, using their wires to keep cracking in <laughs> Right? So, and everybody, like, you, you look at the people in the air hanging, flying, right? You stare, and, and, and only it's not Peter Pan up in the air. It's you, unable to walk, unable to move, forever marked as different, descending from on high through some miracle of ropes and wires. That had to be traumatizing. Yeah, especially if you hit something right traumatizing and it's emblematic of what we call the minority model uh, when we're speaking about disabilities in the minority model individuals with disabilities are viewed as members of an oppressed group that's being treated unfairly by society at large actually it was this model that pervaded for a while in our country that led to the American with Disabilities Act as an oppressed minority group, individuals with disabilities deserve some accommodation to provide dignity and personhood. I remember a youth mission trip I took down to uh, Florida to a place called Give Kids the World. It's, Give Kids the World was founded by a Holocaust survivor. He became kind of a real estate magnate 
and owned a few resorts in the United States. And so he donated and created out of one of his resorts. Have you ever heard of uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation? Right? So if you go down to Make-A-Wish Foundation and you want to go to Disney World and Universal Studios and SeaWorld, most often those families will stay at Give Kids the World. It's free. It's all-inclusive. You get ice cream for breakfast. There's a cookie golf cart that just drives around all day to give you cookies whenever you want one. You get presents every morning, and then there's tickets every day, and you can choose which theme park you want to go to. There's parties at night. My friend Brian had gone and had a Make-A-Wish Foundation wish there, so he got to go with his family, and he always wanted to go back and serve to volunteer. It's an all-volunteer-run organization. And so um, I promised him that we'd go down to Florida when he turned 16. He wanted to give back to a place that had brought him so much joy during a difficult time in his life. So we, we headed down there in our magic church bus that miraculously worked the entire time that, that year. And Brian's stepmom came with us because he was at the point with his muscular dystrophy that he was struggling quite a bit. And we noticed about halfway through our first day that Brian wasn't drinking any water. And if you know anything about um, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, you have to stay hydrated. He had, I think, is it like the camel back? Is that what those, like he had the water thing always on his back, and we were always making sure that he was drinking to stay hydrated. And we could see that he hadn't been drinking at all, because by this point, you see, Brian needed help in the bathroom. And like any 16-year-old, he didn't want to stand out. (laughs) any more than he already did. He didn't want to be any more of a minority in that room of teenagers than he already was. And the thought of having to be taken to the women's room by your stepmom in front of your peers was devastating to him. And so in Brian's mind, it was a fate worse than the complications of dehydration. So he stopped drinking so he wouldn't have to use the restroom. No 16-year-old boy wants that disability or no disability. Eventually, we reached a compromise. If he would drink, I would take him to the men's room. And I've been doing it for years, only this year it changed because I used to be able to take him and sit him down fully clothed and leave. But now he'd lost the motor skills to take down his own clothes. And as a youth minister, I had been trained and trained and retrained, right? Countless times, don't go in the bathroom with a minor, much less take their pants off. (laughs) Every alarm bell in me was like, I'm not supposed to do this. But what do you do when you're in the moment? And so we wrote up some impromptu waivers, and I did what needed to be done for Brian. And I felt awkward, (laughs) And I worried about whether I was doing the right thing, and it took me a couple stops to realize, as awkward and unsettling as this was for me, can you imagine being 16 and having to help your youth, have your youth director help you in the bathroom in front of all of your peers? I think of that trip. Whenever I hear people arguing about gender-neutral bathrooms, Right? We've made them about something completely different than what they could be because if they'd had them on our trip, how much dignity could Brian have been saved if he and his, mo- his stepmother could have just gone into a bathroom by themselves? Ungendered, just the two of them. How much dignity 
could have been saved for the man in our story today if there had been some accommodations for someone like him. Which brings us to the third and final way that people look at disabilities. It's a relatively new perspective. It's called the social model of disability. This model makes a distinction between the concept of disability and impairment. For example, Brian may have been physically impaired, but it was society's lack of appropriate bathrooms that disabled him from experiencing the same dignity as the other teenagers. The man in Mark's gospel may have had a physical impairment, but it was the lack of accommodation in that house at Capernaum that disabled him from seeing Jesus without cutting a hole in the ceiling. My, um, my own acid reflux may impair me from eating ghost peppers. My anxiety might impair me from seeing the world rationally sometimes. My depression might impair my ability of seeing myself rationally sometimes. And my ADHD might impair your ability to follow my train of thought in a sermon sometimes. (laughs) It might impair me, but it doesn't disable me. The social model would say that a workplace... That, re- that required me never to talk about the squirrels that I constantly see in life might disable me if they don't hire people who talk about squirrels. We might be impaired, but it's society that disables us from seeking employment or finding a restroom in public or finding seating in a theater, enrolling in the same classes as our peers, or even as, I, as I've seen the sanctuary and new eyes these last weeks that might disable us from actually coming to the altar when we have an altar call. There's a lot to see when we begin to see the world with new eyes. There's a lot to, that we might never, never have seen before. And it's hard. That's why I'm so thankful in our our leadership council this year, one of our goals for 2024 is to do an assessment of this building and, and our worship services and all that we do and make sure that all that we do is accessible to all people. Are we being thoughtful? Or are there ways that people still have to drill holes in our ceiling to get to places That's what we're doing with Good People Cafe. We're creating a space from the ground up that is accessible to all people. That there aren't extra hoops to, to find a job. That, that worship is, is meaningful for everybody in the room. And hopefully those, these two places, good people and, and faith, we begin to just blend into each other. Right? And it's going to take a lot of prayer to make that happen. It takes prayer to change our hearts, to change our lives, which brings us back to the hard question. Why doesn't God heal everybody now so we don't have to think about all of those things? Well, one, I hope you learned that not everybody's body is a 
prayer request to not look at everybody and think they need healed. That they're already holy who they need to be. But even in those places where we do cry out for healing, my hope is that we hear this story of Jesus and the man who could not walk and remember that what Jesus wants for us most of all is that the broken relationship is mended. Our broken relationship with God and with our neighbors. It doesn't mean that physical healing doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you can't cry out for it. I mean, did you hear it in our psalm today? Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. How long, oh God? It's okay to cry out. It's okay to rage, rage against what is happening in our world, in our bodies. But when we make answered prayers in our physical body as a litmus test for our belief in God, we've got it all wrong. It's when we lose our faith, sometimes when we need our faith the most. Remember, at the end of the day, God has won. Christ has sealed the victory. We will be healed one day. And in the meantime, Christ is with us in all places. And so the best we can do is make sure that all people can get to all the places where Christ is. Amen? Amen. Amen.